Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. This is Jim. I'll be your host today. A uh, couple of <clears throat> personal things that I want to get out of the way is uh, I got my shot today, or actually it was yesterday. Um, the first, I got a Moderna vaccine shot. I wasn't going to originally. I've, you know, I've talked about this with a lot of people that I really didn't see any need to get the vaccine. But it was something my parents really wanted me to do um, because I'm, you know, I'm in some of the danger, you know, uh, what danger zone, I don't know, you know. But anyway, they asked me to, and I want to be respectful, you know, and so it's important to them. So if it's important to them, it's important to me. So anyway, I went ahead and got my first shot yesterday. And, uh, you know, no pain, no side effects, so that's all good. My arm's a little sore, like almost like when I was a kid and I'd play baseball and my arm would start to hurt after a while from throwing the ball. That's kind of how it feels a little bit, but nothing too bad. The other thing I'm really looking forward to is uh, I'm getting a book today. Sometime today I should receive it. Uh, it's called Lucky. Um and it's about behind the scenes of the 2020 presidential campaign. Um, and it talks about a lot of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, the rest of the title is something, I can't remember exactly how the title goes, but like how Joe Biden barely won the presidency or something. And a lot of people have been getting, been criticizing it. A lot of, a lot of Democrats and, and things saying, you know, that Joe Biden didn't barely win. But that's not really what they're trying to say is that, you know, um, they're talking about how he barely won in the over in the meta narrative of the campaign. He he barely won. There were a series of events that if they hadn't happened, he wouldn't have gotten the nomination and therefore he wouldn't have won. You know, they talk about the pandemic, how if it hadn't been for the for the uh, uh, pandemic and the shutdowns that Trump probably would have won, you know, that it was a lucky, if you want to say that it was lucky for Joe Biden, you know, he barely won because if it hadn't been for the pandemic, he, he would have lost. So anyway, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, we've talked about on our show before about how Joe Biden um, was not the people's choice really. But when it got down to the election, and they had to choose between Trump and Biden and really with the economy the way it was and things, they went ahead and voted for Biden. So it sounds like a really interesting book uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. I mean, it's going to talk about behind the scenes. I think it's going to talk a little bit about behind the scenes of the Republican side as well. I don't think it's just focused on the Democrats. It's by the same authors who wrote Shattered about the 2016 campaign and Hillary Clinton's um, loss. And in that one, they did talk a little bit about the Republican campaign as well, but they focused mostly on Hillary Clinton's. And it's the same thing here that I think it's going to mostly focus on the Democrats and their, and the campaign for the primary through the general election, but they will talk about the Republican as well. So, um, I'll be sure to share some tidbits and maybe a review next week of what I think about it. Um, it shouldn't take me more than a week to get through the book. Um, it doesn't usually, 
Uh, I usually devour these things pretty quickly. But anyway, those are some things I'm really looking forward to on a personal basis, some things going on in my life. Um, here in Michigan, I got a couple of news stories here uh, that I want to talk about. Um, John James is back, and he is launching a political action committee to support Republican candidates in 2022. This is from MLive. And uh, here's what it, it says. John James, a Republican businessman who unsuccessfully ran for U.S. Senate in Michigan twice, is launching a political action committee to support candidates in 2020 elections. The 39-year-old Farmington Hills businessman first announced the formation of his Mission First People Always Committee. James, who is considered a top recruit for Republicans seeking to dethrone Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2022, will serve as chairman of the PAC. James plans to financially support candidates who lead through the challenges of today with the boldness and balance that empowers Americans to live freer, more joyous lives while ensuring our nation is powerful, prosperous, and peaceful, according to the PAC's website. The PAC's website states it is looking for candidates with true conservative principles who will strengthen families, ensure access to the American dream, restore trust in our fellow Americans, secure the country, and govern with common sense sustainability. Um, the Republican Party was founded by men and women who were willing to fight and die not for themselves, but for the freedoms of the failed and of the future, the website states. Now Republicans abandon their principles and shy away from debate in the face of cancel culture and mean tweets. We must be bold, stand on our principles, and take action. Oh, and then it, it goes on here, uh, talking about how he's lost twice. And, um, you know, so if you want to read it, go ahead. Um, here's uh, this little bit is a little interesting. Um, the Detroit News reported James met with representatives of the Republican Governors Association as the group seeks to recruit a candidate to challenge Whitmer. James is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and served eight years in the Army before being honorably discharged at the rank of captain. After leaving the Army, James became president of his family supply chain business, James Group International. Um, yeah, there's interesting things here. That website just sounds like it's written by politicos and lawyers. I mean, it's... A lot of words doesn't really say anything. I mean, what does this stuff mean? You know, you can always, I mean, um, you know, you can always tell political speak. I mean, it's just, it's always a lot of rhetoric, you know, looking to support candidates who lead through the challenges of today with the boldness and balance that empowers Americans. You know, um, you know, uh, you know, people who will strengthen families ensure access to the American dream, restore trust in our fellow Americans, secure the country and govern with common sense sustainability. What does that mean? You know, we don't see anything. It's just rhetoric. It's just flowery things. You know, it doesn't actually mean anything. It just sounds good. But I thought that was really interesting that he says, now Republicans abandon their principles and shy away from debate 
in the face of cancel culture and mean tweets. What on earth is he talking about cancel culture and mean tweets? You know, when he supported Donald Trump. I mean, this is ridiculous. Donald Trump was the king of mean tweets. The Democrats couldn't mean tweet to save their life. They kept putting out pathetic little things, you know. Um, Donald Trump was the one who gave people nicknames and and scared Republicans away from, um, you know, going against him because they were afraid he might mean tweet about them. And cancel culture, I mean, my goodness. They're the one, they're trying to cancel Liz Cheney because they, because she voted to impeach him. I mean, they're, you know, they, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, you know, they, sometimes Republicans bother me because they actually, um, talk about things that they do and they make it look like it's everybody else. For example, you know, the affordable care act came out and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm in favor of the affordable care act, but I'm saying, you know, what's common to call Obamacare. They, they passed Obamacare had all these provisions in there to help people and to get people on, um, you know, to get people on, on, uh, health insurance and all this poor people and these, these kind of things. And then the Republicans, the governors and other people absolutely gut it. They refuse to fund it. They refuse to put any money into it. You know, Donald Trump passes legislation to weaken it. And then the Republicans run on Obamacare is a failure. It doesn't even do what it promised to do. So therefore we should get rid of it. It doesn't do what it promised to do because the Republicans gutted it <laughs> because they wouldn't fund it. They wouldn't, you know, but then they run on, look how horrible it is. Obama created this horrible institution that didn't do anything. It doesn't help anybody. That's what I mean. Like Republicans many times will create a problem and then complain that that the problem exists. Or as we know, like with Barack Obama, we know from the caucus room conspiracy, the caucus room is a, uh, uh, a restaurant in Washington, D.C. And it's well known that after Obama was elected, like the next day, like or not elected after he was inaugurated, like January 21st, 2009. The Republicans, the led, the leaders of the Republican Party in the, uh, well, in the party and in the House and Senate, had a dinner at the caucus room, and they decided they were going to block everything that Barack Obama did. They were determined to make him a one-term president, and so they did that. They well, not make him a one-term president, but they blocked everything. And then when he went for to run for re-election, they talked about what a failure he was because. He, you know, he ran on all these flowery things and all these things he was going to do, and he didn't do any of it. Well, he didn't do any of it because the Republicans refused to allow him to do anything of, you know, but then they ran on he was a failure because he didn't do anything that he promised to do. You know, he was just a liar. He just ran on all these things and refused to do them. So the Republicans have a habit of uh, running on issues, of creating a problem and then running and saying, oh, look, this is why all these problems you need to elect us because all these problems exist in the world. You know, so and that's what I'm saying here. I mean, you know, the Republicans are just as guilty with cancel culture, except they do it in a different way. You know, they, they try to cancel Colin Kaepernick for, for bending a knee. They try to cancel, you know, Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney because they voted for impeachment of the president. They try to cancel, you know, people for, for not adhering to the Donald Trump cult, you know, by not supporting whatever Donald Trump wanted, you know, and always putting out mean tweets and, you know, and, and, and things. And now, you know, we need to, the Republican party to, you know, 
be bold in the face of cancer culture and mean tweets. And just it just strikes me as funny that, you know, they're guilty of some of these things and then tried to run as if they're the ones who are going to solve the problem that we need to be bold and, and stop it. But um, I suspected as much when I read the headline that John James was creating a political action committee. You don't. And I, I know it sounds cynical, but it's true. People don't do stuff like that for altruistic reasons. I immediately thought he's planning to run for something. That's why he's doing this, because you have to, or you don't have to, but it really helps to make it look like you're not in this for yourself. You're looking for the greater good. So if a candidate only makes it about themselves, like I'm only going to participate if I'm on the ballot, I only care about winning for myself. I couldn't care less if the you know Republicans or Democrats win as long as I get elected, then people see through that and they don't like it. So lots of times, if they're planning a run in the future, they will get involved trying to get Republicans elected. That way it just wins some goodwill. Look, I'm not getting anything out of this. I just want the party to succeed. I want America to succeed. You know, and so it, it gives them, it makes it look like they're running when they do run, they're running for the best interest of the country because it's not about me. It's about the country. So I immediately thought he must be running for something. And here he's obviously leaving the door open to run for governor in two years. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I mean, the the problem is if he runs for governor and he loses a third time, then he will be an anathema to the Republican Party because now he would have wasted three cycles where the Democrat, the Republicans could have won and he lost and they will want nothing to do with him. So if he's going to get in this race, he better make darn sure that he's going to win because you can't be a three-time loser. The party will reject you. You will have no future in the party in politics if you run three times and lost. So, I mean, and, and, and this is statewide. Now, of course, in national politics, you rarely ever get a second chance. I mean, if you, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump might be an exception if he decided to run in four years. But typically, if you run and you lose, you're done for. Like, like with Hillary Clinton, she's way too old to be running. But if she was younger, she would never get the nomination again because they gave her a shot. She lost. They're done with her. Um, Jimmy Carter lost in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. He had no future in politics again after that. He's done. Um, you know, they, the National Party, because you only have these elections every four years, and they're so consequential presidential elections that if you run there and you lose, you're done for. You're done. You get out. And, in fact, you saw that Hillary Clinton has become toxic to a lot of Democrats. If you saw in 2020 during the primary, she was given a very small speaking role um, and she has not been asked to publicly endorse any candidates. Um, she still tweets occasionally and throws out her opinion, but but the party has rejected her. They bring out Barack Obama to support candidates and endorse people and to speak on their behalf, but they have not asked Hillary Clinton to go out and camp. They didn't ask her to come out and campaign for Joe Biden. They did not, you know, because she lost and they're like, you know, they turned their back and the Republicans do the same thing. I mean, the Republicans do exactly the same thing. 
Trump might be an exception to this rule, but typically, um, you know, if 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 you lose, the party cuts off all ties with you. Like you're you're done. Um, you know, you didn't see Mitt Romney. Now, of course, Mitt Romney didn't like Trump, so there was a lot of animosity between the two of them. So that is partly what to explain why you didn't see Mitt Romney at the Republican convention. But even before that, uh, Mitt Romney was not – after he lost to Barack Obama in 2012, he was persona non grata. Like he was done. Uh, that's why he had to he had to carpet bag over to Utah in order to run for the Senate because that was the only place where he could win because it has a high Mormon population. And being a Mormon, um, they were willing to vote for one of their own over anybody else because he was done in politics on the Republican Party anywhere else in the country because he had a chance. They had a chance to unseat Barack Obama. They put their faith and trust in Mitch, Mitt Romney. He lost. Fine. Get out. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. We're done with you. You know, you cost us the presidency. I mean, it's it's just a, a, a heartless profession politics can be. So that's what I'm saying here. If, if, if John James runs for the governorship and loses to Whitmer, he's done. They'll have given him three chances, and it's going to be an uphill battle anyway because there will be – I'm not saying he can't get the nomination if he ran for governor, but there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are going to say, we already bet on him twice, and he lost both times. We don't want to lose the governor's race. We want to get rid of Whitmer. Maybe we shouldn't risk it on a two-time loser. Maybe we should start fresh with someone new that we know can beat her instead of someone who might be able to but might not. You know, doesn't mean he can't get the nomination, but it's going to be a lot harder than if he was a novice or if he'd only run once and lost. Um, so anyway, but that's something definitely – I mean we still have some time here, but it's definitely something to keep we'll keep an eye on, um, although – let me just say, by way of as we as we pass by this, um, let me just throw this in that have you noticed how boring Biden must be? Because he's only been in office less than a hundred days. I mean, less than seventy-five days. I'm not exactly sure the number, but it's no more than seventy-five days. And everybody's already talking about the 2022 and 2024 elections. I mean, I'm hearing all about Christy Noam and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence all preparing their 2024 runs for president. You know, I'm hearing all about like the midterms and who's, you know, um, which senators are vulnerable, um, who's going to be running against, you know, Madison Crawthorn or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, um, you know, what's happening, what's going to happen with uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, there's some talk that he might, retire during the middle of this term um this might be his last term in office you know there's a lot of a lot of talk and i'm thinking i mean that's just unbelievable that we have a brand new president it'd be different if donald trump was reelected, because then yeah everyone would be talking because nothing really changed we've already had donald trump in office for four years it's just more of the same so it kind of gets exciting about who's going to replace him but joe biden just got elected and already everyone's talking about who's going to replace him. Um, you know, what's going to happen in the midterms and who's going to replace him in 2024. And um, 
you know, and on the Democratic side, I'm hearing about whether he'll run for re-election, whether Kamala Harris will be the nominee, um, you know, or is somebody else going to step up and try to wrestle the nomination away from Kamala Harris? I mean, it seems to be a foregone conclusion that Joe Biden is only a one-termer. And it, I mean, I just, by way of passing, uh, you know, as we're talking about the upcoming election, I mean, it just, it says something about the state of the nation that they're not really that fascinated with Joe Biden. And um, there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, whether or not you like Donald Trump or agreed with him, he was a very strong personality. Nobody can deny that. And uh, much like Reagan, much like Theodore Roosevelt, um, it's hard to replace somebody like that. Uh, John Adams had that problem when he replaced George Washington. Um, when you have someone who's a huge figure, whether they're loved or hated or indifferent, it doesn't matter. But when they're a huge figure and they leave, the person who replaces them always becomes pale in comparison. Biden is just not – he doesn't have that personality. So there seems to be a huge void right now in the news. There's still a lot of talk. Jim Acosta from CNN is completely obsessed with Trump. He's supposed to cover the White House, but for some reason, he's always hiding in the bushes down in Florida covering Trump golfing and things. Um, I, I don't understand why he's not at the White House covering Biden, but um, but you know, there's just this huge void, and you're still seeing late night hosts and comics still talking about Donald Trump, even though Joe Biden's in office, uh, because Trump was such a huge figure, and so anybody who replaced Trump is going to be uh, somewhat dull in comparison. But so I, I think that's the major thing. And, and Biden hasn't done anything to dispel that because he's doing the very traditional presidential route, how presidents were prior to Trump, where they don't make a lot of news. They go, you could sometimes go weeks without hearing some big news story about the president. Um, like I remember, you know, I remember back in the day when uh, George W. Bush was president. We were leading up to the war in Iraq. I mean, that is all you heard on the news for months was all about Iraq, about Iraq, about Iraq. You know, are we going to go into Iraq? What's going on with the weapons of mass destruction? You know, building coalitions. There wasn't. Well, we're going to talk about Iraq today, and we're going to talk about kneeling, you know, football players, and we're going to talk about cancel culture, and we're going to talk about this. I mean, no, it was like that was all they focused on and it got dull, but it, it drilled into people's minds that something had to be done about Iraq. Um, with Trump, you know, you, they might announce infrastructure week, but then by that night, he's fighting with Nancy Pelosi. And by the next morning, there's some scandal, whether real or imagined that he got, you know, more scoops of ice cream than everybody else at, at a White House dinner or something. I mean, it was constant. The news cycle was constantly moving, like almost every hour there was a new breaking news. You know, um, Donald Trump tweeted this. Donald Trump said that. Donald Trump announced this. Donald Trump is, is doing this over here. So we got accustomed to that. And so now it, it does seem rather boring when Biden is just talking about the pandemic. You know, we're, you know, we're going to talk about the 500,000 person who died from the pandemic. I'm going to have a press conference, you know, talk about 
you know, wearing masks and getting your vaccine. We're going to, you know, we're going to do another press conference with that. Anthony Fauci talking about how we might be able to get past this pandemic by July. It's very dull in comparison. Now, that's how politics used to be. But after we had four years of Trump, it seems rather dull. And I can see where people are kind of excited about what's going to happen in the future. You know, what's what, what's going to happen? Because covering Biden is not really all that interesting because how many stories can you write about the pandemic before you run out of things to talk about? Um, you know, how many times can you repeat that Biden thinks we should wear a mask? Biden thinks we should get our vaccination shot. Biden thinks Biden's hoping by summer we can go back to normal. Biden's hoping that, you know, Biden wants to announce this, you know, this task force, whatever. I mean, it's just, there's only so many stories you can write about it. So they end up getting bored and like, oh, wow, let's let's talk about 2022 and talk about 2024 and all this. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, so anyway, they're pretty bored talking about um, Biden. Oh, um, oh, there was one more story. I, I had I thought I only had three stories to cover. So I was going a little into detail, but then I realized there was four. Um, this one is from the AP, from David Eggert, and it's uh, the headline reads, the court, court rules um, that it's too hard for independents to make the Michigan ballot. Um, Michigan's requirement independent statewide candidates collect at least 30,000 valid voter signatures is unconstitutional, a federal appeals court ruled, two to one on Monday, upholding a lower judge. The sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision kept intact a 12,000 signature threshold set by District Judge Victoria Roberts in 2019. The case began in 2018 when State Attorney General candidate Chris Graveline's name was ordered on the ballot after he and some voters sued. Uh, the judges said the combination of the 30,000 signature minimum, a requirement that at least 100 come from half of 14 congressional districts, and the state's July filing deadline imposes a severe burden on independent candidates. Only five states in the union have a higher signature requirement, according to the majority. The 2018 filing deadline came 50 days before major party candidates for attorney general, who did not have to submit signatures, were nominated at conventions. Um, so anyway, if you want to check that out, that's really interesting. That's It's a problem for a long time. The two parties have a monopoly all over the country. Um, in some areas, you just have to, um, in Michigan, for some offices, you know, if you want to run as a Republican or a Democrat, you throw down $100 and you can get on the ballot. I mean, it's real simple if you want to be a Republican or a Democrat. But if you want to run as a third party, you have to get thousands and thousands of signatures. And they can't be signatures just in your hometown among your friends. You've got to get a, a swath from all over the from all over the state. Upper Peninsula, you know, if you're from the West Michigan, you got to get Upper Peninsula, Central Michigan, Detroit area. You have to get all these thousands and thousands of signatures, and you have to pay like five hundred dollars. And I mean, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just throwing those numbers out. I don't know exactly the numbers, but I've looked into it before. <coughs> um, because I don't really like the two parties. And I've always thought if I wanted to run for office, I might run as an independent. And I realized that it's just, it is so difficult and so time consuming and so expensive to run as an independent 
it is much easier just to run as a party member. Um, and it, it just discourages people from trying to run a third party uh, campaign. Plus, there's no guarantee that after you've gone about getting all those things that you'll even get on the ballot because if they find, you know, just one person on that entire sheet that there's something wrong about it, they'll throw out that whole sheet with everybody on there because they'll figure, well, if one person, if, if, if one person, if, you, you know, if there's a mistake on one person, then there could be a mistake on all of them. And we're not going to bother going through that entire sheet to check every person. We'll just invalidate all that. So you can easily get thrown off the ballot, you know, after all that work and money and everything. Um, so they force it like that so that you have to, you'll want to run as part of the two-party system. And they have this all over the country. It's why you very rarely ever see independents, except unless you're like Ross Perot or some billionaire, another billionaire, you never see a third-party candidate um, in the debates for president because every state has different um, rules. And so in some of them, you know, you might have to get like a million signatures to get on the ballot. In some of them, you know, maybe only 30,000. You know, in some of them, there's a, a fee that you have to pay along with the ballots. Sometimes there's no there's no ballot requirement, but you have to pay like, you know, $50,000 to get on the ballot or something. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I've looked into it a few times. It's either Kentucky or Tennessee that has this huge uh, uh, fine, uh, not fine, but, you know, um, but a huge amount of money that you have to pay to get on the ballot along with the ballot signatures. And I remember thinking, unless you're independently wealthy, how on earth are you going to raise money to get on the ballot? You know, but of course, if you run as a Republican or Democrat, you don't have to do that. You can, you know, so it's just, uh, so I've been concerned about that for a long time, this monopoly and the stranglehold that the two parties have on politics. But um, it, it's still quite a steep uh, hill here, but it's a lot better now that they've thrown that out. And hopefully the Congress or the legislature will pass something to make it a little more um, easy to get on the ballot. Um, I'm going to rush ahead here. Uh, speaking of Joe Biden earlier, we now have information about Infrastructure Week. Um, and climate. This is what Joe Biden is unveiling. Uh, he's unveiling a $2 trillion infrastructure and climate plan. Now this, if it, if it passes, which it's hard to say if it'll pass through both, both branches of Congress, but if it passes, this would be one of the most, um, uh, I don't know what the word is. I'll just say I don't like using these small words because they don't mean as much, but it will be one of the biggest projects um, since Franklin Roosevelt was in office. Um, he wants to replace every lead pipe in the nation. He wants universal clean drinking water. So he wants us to go through and clean up all the waters in the United States. Two million, two million homes retrofitted or built. I imagine these some kind of low-income houses. 
universal affordable high-speed broadband by the year 2030. Fix 20,000 miles of roads and bridges. Um, I mean, there's more, but those are just the highlights. I mean, these are substantial changes that he, you know, he wants to do. Some of these things are needed. Our bridges are collapsing around the country. Um, you know, our levees, our dams are going bad. Many of these things were built in the 1950s, and they were only meant to last 50 years. I mean, they were, you know, these things can't last forever. They were built in the 50s, and they had a lifespan of about 50 years. Well, they were never rebuilt. They were just patched up and repaired. So, um, so we have a lot of bridges that were built in the 50s that are crumbling, you know, and people are just putting, like, duct tape. I mean, you know. In theory, I mean, not, not literally, but basically just putting tuck, duct tape up there to keep the things uh, in place. They haven't torn these things down and rebuilt them with modern standards, with modern uh, technology. Uh, they've just patched up holes and things. And so th those things do need to be done. Um, and I've thought this for a long time. but thing is here I don't know if he'll be able to get this through because he's you know especially in the Senate he's got to get every Democrat on board in order to pass it even if none of the Republicans support it and uh, I don't know if he'll be able to get all of it there are some things that I've already heard are creating problems and that is the universal affordable high-speed broadband <clears throat> They've already criticized it, saying he doesn't. They don't seem to understand what the word universal, universal, and affordable means. Um, if just because something is affordable doesn't mean it's, you know, universal is like universal healthcare. It means the government's going to provide this high-speed broadband. But now they're saying that it's not universal broadband. It's affordable. You know. There's a difference. You can't be a universal, affordable, high-speed broadband. You have to be one or the other. Um, so progressives are going to have some problems with that, especially because of the pandemic when so many uh, people are working and going to school at home. It's a big burden on a lot of people to have to buy, to go out and purchase um, high-speed internet in order for the kids, when they already pay taxes for public school, now the public school is closed down, so they're still paying taxes on the public school, but then they have to go out and buy uh, high-speed internet for the kids to go to school, which they're already paying taxes for, but the taxes are not being, you know, they're not, they're not having their taxes rescinded so they can, you know, they're not saying, instead of paying your school tax, use that to pay for you know, the internet, they're saying you have to pay for both schools that aren't in session and high speed internet. Um, so there's going to be some problem with progressives on that one. Um, and there will be a huge backlash from a lot of businesses for the universal clean drinking water because I imagine that is going to be affect businesses because they're going to talk about polluting the waters and. 
<coughs> things like that. And they're going to expect the companies to pitch in and pay for those things. So it's interesting. It, it's a huge undertaking. And some of that stuff does need to be done. But at a price tag of $2 trillion on top of the stimulus package and these things, I don't know if he'll be able to get this through. It's very ambitious. This probably would have been better to bring out next year, early next year. Um, get the economy moving first and then propose this. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But, I mean, that's – but it is, it is the first infrastructure plan that we've seen in a long time. So I have to give him credit for that. At least he's coming up with a plan. It probably won't go anywhere, but at least he submitted something. I mean, uh, every president since, like, Bill Clinton has talked about Infrastructure Week, and they never seem to actually have anything that they're doing or planning. They just keep talking about protecting our infrastructure. And, and of course, that was the joke during the Trump years is that his aides would continue, or maybe not continuously, but several times, they said, this week's going to be infrastructure week. And then something would happen in the world or in politics, and they'd never introduce it. It would end up being overshadowed by, you know, by uh, Russiagate or, you know, the impeachment or, you know, um, North Korea or something, you know, something would happen and they never actually did infrastructure week. So, I mean, it was a joke among political people you know, that, you know, oh, you know, here comes infrastructure week, you know, that never seems to happen. Uh, uh, let me see. And then um, I'll close with this one. Uh, under the guise of inclusive inclusivity, the University of Nevada, Reno, has implemented minority-only dorm communities telling the Young Americans for Freedom, that's the website, that white students are not considered to fill spots for the safety of student participants. So what is happening here in the University of Nevada, as we talked about, I told you about the segregation of, um, of graduation and things. Now at the University of Nevada, Reno, they're creating segregated dorm communities. So if you are Latino, indigenous, or black scholars, you will not have any white people allowed in those dorm facilities. I'm not talking about just being roommates. There will be no white students allowed in that entire building. And this is what I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, that we are becoming full circle where in the 40s with the army and in the 50s and 60s, we were trying as a nation to stop segregation. We were trying as a nation integrate to create more, I don't know if the word is tolerance, but more understanding between the races have them eat together, have them play together, have them, you know, play on the same sports teams, have them, you know, there was a big deal. There was a backlash. Jackie Robinson, when he was, you know, uh, a great bat baseball player, he was um, put on a team with all white players. And there was a lot of backlash that 
you know, the, you know, from racist who said, we don't want a black man playing on the teams. Um, there was, you know, like I said, a desire to have them eat together, um, have lodging together in the same hotels, uh, be able to see a movie together, to break down the barrier so that there wasn't a white section in a movie theater and then a black section up in the balconies, you know, that they could sit next to each other and enjoy a comedy or a romance or a Western or whatever. They should be able to sit together. They should be able to go to church together. There shouldn't be a white church and a black church that they should worship God together. They should, you know, they, the kids should go to school together and get to know each other instead of just seeing each other as a stereotype to actually go to school together and sit together and eat lunch together and play in the playground together, you know, and get to know each other. And now we've become a nation of, I'll just say wimps. We're now there is a fear that a white person might say something that is considered derogatory or hurtful, and that might hurt a minority's feelings. And so therefore, keep them separate so that black kids don't have to hear anything derogatory by a white person. That might happen. I mean, it's not a guarantee that a white person is going to be rude, just but in case. And I, I think about how we are, again, I, wimpifying, I don't know what the word would be. Uh, I have a couple ideas, but a lot of them aren't appropriate um, to say. But uh, but I think about, um, you know, those, those black kids at Little Rock, when they went to integrate the Little Rock High School, um, I think of Ruby Ridges, Ruby Ridges uh, in Louisiana when she was a little girl and she was going to school in the, in the National Guard was leading her into school and they were throwing tomatoes at her and calling her the N-word. They were calling her all kinds of names, white racist, and how she held her head up proudly and walked into that school. Like I said, there were people in Little Rock who were saying the most vile, hateful things, threatening to kill these black kids. You know, um, you know, these kids are walking along and there are people with guns you know, threatening them. The only thing protecting them was the National Guard, making sure that these white racists weren't shooting these black kids who were just coming to school. They weren't rioting. These kids weren't, you know, they weren't breaking into buildings. They were just going to school and you had people with guns threatening to blow their head off because they wanted to come to a white school. And I think about the moral courage, even of men like John Lewis, when they marched across the Pettus, Pettus Bridge in Selma, you know, and they were met with police officers with batons and they were beaten and they were yelled at, you know, and beaten with an inch of their life. And how they persevered and they overcame and they didn't let name calling and insults and taunts stop them. And I think now how we've gone from from that to a white person might say something that hurts your feelings. So let's keep you as far away from as white people as possible so that your feelings won't be hurt. I don't agree with this at all. I, I don't I don't like this. It is, in my opinion, it is un-American. It is un-American. That is not what we were founded on, even though I understand that our founders 
they didn't realize what they were doing. I mean, you know, what, what they said was all men are created equal. That's why we created this nation was that we didn't have a hierarchy. We didn't have a class system. We didn't have a ruling class. We didn't have, they didn't understand what they were saying in the fullest sense that blacks and whites and women and, and Jewish people and Native Americans and all these people would one day be equal. They didn't, they didn't look that far ahead. But that's what they were saying, even if they didn't realize it. They were laying out an ideal that in America, in the great melting pot, that we are a nation of nations. We are a nation of individuals from all over the world. And, um, you know, and we're the shining city on the hill that all nations could look to and see how people work through their problems because we're all so different from each other in all different cultures and races and religions. And yet we were going to learn how to work through those differences, not through fights, not through wars, but, you know, through a common ideal, through a common goal, you know, that we would be that shining city on the hill, that maybe we would put an end to war because they'd see that in America, you know, the Northern Irish and the Irish can live in peaceful harmony. And yet here we're, you know, during, during the eighties and seventies and eighties, these people were blowing each other up and fighting. They couldn't, the Catholics and Protestants couldn't get along. And yet in America, they live peacefully among each other. You know, that was the idea that we would be that shining city. Everyone could look at us and say, well, if Americans can do it, why can't we? Why can't we get along with our neighbors? Why can't we get along with the country next to us? If they can live together. So I think it's un-American. This idea that we all need to be separate. Um, I mean, we've returned to that separate but equal. Um, I believe that was the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court ruling about separate but equal. I mean, you have to have equal you know, you can have a white restroom or a restaurant and a black restaurant, we'll say restroom. They have to be separate, but they have to be equal. You can't have a black, well, we'll say school. You can't have a black school that's that's completely underfunded and, and horrible, but the white school is, is beautiful and gorgeous and got the best technology. They have to be separate. You have to have a separate schools, but they have to be equal. They have to, you know, the black kids have to be able to have as, as good as white people, just they couldn't be together. And that's what it sounds like to me here is that they're pulling, you know, black kids can have their dorm. The dorm has to be just as good as the white kids dorm, but they have to have their own dorm. That's, that's all it is, separate but equal. Um, and that is such an archaic belief that I can't believe that I'm even having to defend this in America. I, I just, I just cannot believe that I have to make the case that segregation is wrong. I think I mentioned this a week or two ago. I can't believe I have to make the case that segregation is wrong. That we should, that we shouldn't be able to live peaceably together. Um, but anyway, all right, I'm looking at the time. I'm over again. Um, so anyway, I hope everyone has a great week. Uh, love one another. Uh, you know, show peace and compassion. And we'll be back here next week. 
and hopefully we'll have a lot of great things to talk about. So bye everyone.